Monday, December 17th in Los Angeles. LA podcast. Scott Frazier, Alyssa Walker, Hayes Davenport speaking. Uh, God, we have another interview this week that is absolutely a fire. Uh, we have we have two teachers. Uh, we have Janice Chow and Jasenia Chavez. They're both teachers at the UCLA Community School uh, on Wilshire on the RFK campus, uh, and they are members of United Teachers of Los Angeles, UTLA, the Teachers Union, and they are going to talk to us about why they are ready to go on strike, which they might do for the first time in almost 30 years wow. uh, in <clears throat> January. As soon as they come back from winter break, we might be seeing a teacher strike. Uh, and they tell us all about it. That was really interesting. But before we do that, let's talk about the news and let's tell a few LA stories. Do you guys have any interesting stories from this week? I know you have. An I do have an interesting story. story. I've been teasing it for you guys for <laughs> a few days. Um, I wanted to tell you about it earlier in the week, but then I wanted your live reactions on mic. It's just better content all about con- creating engaging content. Um, I went to, so we had Tommy Newman from everyone in on the show last week and he talked to us about that. There was a meeting, uh, about supportive housing in echo park. They want to turn what's currently a basketball court slash parking lot into, uh, into supportive housing. So I go to this meeting, the line is, it was at the Angeles temple that, uh, Amy Semple McPherson, uh, built in the twenties. Uh, the line was so long to get in crazy long line. And already I'm sort of like, Oh, because when a lot of people are showing up to a supportive housing <laughs> yeah. meeting, it's usually not uh, to support it. Um, and so I'm waiting in the line and this, uh, this woman comes out and she's like going down the line uh, and she's like, it's not a meeting. It's an informational session. It's not, yes, it's okay. not a meeting. It's not a meeting. She had shown up to speak out against the supportive housing. And she's like, just like letting people know uh, that they were not really going to have the opportunity to uh-huh. do that. It was just an informational session. Uh, and she ends up talking to some people in line that I know. I didn't recognize her. And they informed me that it was Jackie Goldberg. Ah. Uh, mm. Candidate for... Say for me, Dobble. Say for me, Dobble, Jackie okay. Goldberg. Candidate for LAUSD, uh, District 5 uh, representative on the school board, former city council member, uh, was going to this event to speak out against uh, the supportive housing. A ton of people were marshaled uh, to, to speak out against the project by a community center called El Centro del Pueblo, uh, which uh, uses the basketball court. Um, and the, it's like right behind Masa, right? Like if you're across yeah. the street from, yeah, right, mm-hmm. okay. it's by Masa. They have a big yeah. banner up that yeah. says, uh, council member O'Farrell, please save our, our playground, like right, this right, space. Right. And, uh, they, they got a lot. I saw a lot of people holding flyers. They got a lot of people out, uh, mostly Latino families to say like, uh, preserve this area. Uh, everyone in Tommy was there and he told me everyone and everyone in told me, uh, that they are going to. Uh, save every use that exists. Uh, like they're gonna like have another space to play basketball, another playground right there. There's also a playground in Echo Park that is like 200 feet away. Um, they're gonna keep all that stuff. They said it might u- lose some square footage, uh, but they will. You know, they'll keep the space for people to do everything that they did before. Um, 
I also another thing that I think is worth mentioning about El Centro del Pueblo is they also we were uh, the group that I work with is trying to get safe parking at the Edendale Library across the street. And El Centro also protested that. So they are kind of emerging in the Echo Park area. They also play basketball over there. (laughs) (laughs) As a pro basketball anti uh, supportive housing uh, or like a homeless services organization. They do good stuff in the in the neighborhood. They help a lot of families. Uh, the I it's disappointing to me uh, that to, to like use their resources and their political influence to to keep people who are homeless in that community from from getting help. They also brought Malina, uh, They also brought Maria Elena Durazo to the meeting uh, to speak out against the project. So when you have a school board candidate and a uh, a new state senator who's an extremely powerful labor person showing up to a supportive housing meeting in Echo Park to try and stop it from being built, I just think it is a very bad sign for our ability yeah. to create the amount of housing that we need in uh, in Los Angeles. I know Tommy Newman was on the show trying to tell a, a positive story. Uh, but I, you know, doesn't, it seems like not everyone is in who, who, who needs to be in Echo on, Park, not on, all in on some of these, uh, on some of these projects. Hmm. So anyway, that's my story. I got some good faces out of you guys, but not the gasping that I was sort of <laughs> hoping for from, <laughs> from the live reaction. We can go back and put in the gasps. Um, so that's, that, that's what, that's nothing surprises me anymore. Yeah. It, 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 I kind of thought I was kind of like, Oh, that was exactly maybe what I did expect. Not even happen. enough to make me look up from my phone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's most, most news lately. I, I can, it's not exactly an LA story, but I just want to give a shout out to another city. Can I do that oh, on this yeah, podcast? You, yes, yes. Minneapolis this week uh-huh, yeah. ended its apartment ban, which is a wonkier way, a more positive, more, a more everyone in way of saying um, that single family zoning is really gone in the yep. city of Minneapolis. Um, and this was something that was kind of like past, I would say, I know there were probably some disagreements and there was actually a lawsuit um, that got kind of swatted down right before the vote, but it passed easily and with a lot of support and they can really use this amazing tool to now build the housing that they need to build in the city. Um, And just like, what's up? Let's, uh, Let's not yeah, let Minneapolis beat yeah. us, guys. Come I, on. I don't know anything about Minneapolis. Never been there. I wonder if it's one of those cities that's drawn where like Minneapolis is the urban center, like St. Louis or something, where like St. Louis is actually a pretty small city. And then every city around it is like a is a suburb. So what well, is, is that? Yeah. Is it like banning single family zoning in a Manhattan? very small part? Right. You know? Well, I think what's interesting about Minneapolis particularly is like it's Minneapolis, St. Paul. It's a twin city, uh, if you yeah, if you right. might. So now it's kind of like St. Paul also has to do this or, mm-hmm. you know, it does have like what you're saying. It's like a it's surrounded by other cities and, you know, very similar to that. But I, I think it is very significant. It's not um, it's not just like a the small, I'm trying to think of another California type example of, you know, it's like within the city of 88 cities of LA of only one city did this or something like that. Um, mostly because Minneapolis has taken all these other steps around transit and walkability and bikeability that can really 
say like we do have the ability to like move a lot of people around in our city and support the idea that like more people should be living down here in this in this downtown so whether or not it you know reflects what happens in the suburbs or if people will all build their single family homes further further away from the city um they're doing everything right and the climate thing apparently became like a very central part of the conversation which we still cool. don't haven't really seen here nope. you know saying like we can combat this, this problem with density almost almost single-handedly in mm -hmm. many ways. Um, so it was just so good to hear that from a major U.S. city. And I guess like Oregon now wants to introduce something statewide. Statewide. Yeah. Right. So and then so we're looking at, you know, come on, guys, these good people are going to beat us. Single family zoning is ridiculous. We should do that in L.A. It would have major. I think what we've all what we've seen here is that anytime you try to bring up the environmental uh, negatives associated with only allowing single family homes, suburban zoning uh, is that then you get accused of being racist in some way Yes, by like John Mirish of Beverly Hills. <laughs> who, <laughs> the mayor of Beverly Hills. Who, like, the wokest man. Really gives a shit about black people, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, that's, that seems like it is the, the counterpoint and, and, California, Southern California, actually all of California has not been able to move past that yet, yeah. but uh, hopefully soon. I, I like what they did in Minneapolis. Their campaign was um, neighbors for more neighbors. Cool. And it was just like profiles and, and yeah, camp like a campaign built around like, hi, I'm some, I'm, you know, a teacher. I live down the street from you. I would love to be able to afford to live there, you know, and a very like humanizing campaign that made it just about like more people are trying to live here and do the same thing that you're doing. Like, let's let them. Anyone who has uh, any single family homeowner who has that sign in their front yard that says like, we welcome all yeah. kinds of people in this yeah. community right. and stuff. And, they were, and then next to it, it's like, no, yes. on the up zone. Yes, yeah. exactly. But having that sign in your yard should be a contractual agreement to, <laughs> yeah. to, to rezone yeah. your property. Uh, I remember there was a, a candidate for some state office in the Bay Area. His name escapes me now, but he had a really good idea, uh, which was uh, we talk a lot about carbon taxes and gas taxes right now, but a, basically a carbon tax on single family homes. Yeah, uh, it, it totally makes sense. You should have to uh, to pay even more. Um, totally. Uh, Scott, any stories? Um, I don't know. Okay. I uh, don't have to. Have I. Went out to UCB the other night, which was fun. Met up with a friend and uh, misjudged when the show was starting. So ended up having to eat like $80 of sushi at Sushi Stop in 10 minutes before the show started. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which was, it was fun. I, I, I learned that I can eat sushi faster than I ever imagined. It's like so. your own improv I guess that's challenge. Growing. Yeah. <laughs> that's some LA news uh, that we might be the only city with uh, UCB theater in the next couple of weeks. No I think kidding. both New York ones really? are in very serious trouble. Whoa. Yeah. No idea. People uh, don't like to laugh anymore in New York. Yeah, that's well. Uh, yeah, they got playground for the rent. They got priced yeah. out. It's not funny anymore. <laughs> uh, we're going to cover quickly a few things that happened in the news before we get to uh, Janice and Jacenia from UTLA. Uh, we've talked in the past about Tahone Ranch, uh, the new dream utopia city going up uh, and an extreme fire risk area. <laughs> if you ever uh, <laughs> were finding yourself thinking like, 
I want to live in L.A., but I also kind of want to live in Bakersfield. (laughs) I just can't choose between the two. And I want your new home. a completely fireproof home with four fire stations um, within <laughs> walking distance of my house. Uh, so we we talked about it a few weeks ago uh, in our our episode to hone of the brave. You might have listened to it and thought this this is so stupid. Surely this will never happen. It is happening. There was a vote. The supervisors voted. The county supervisors. It was a four to one vote. Sheila Kuehl being the only vote against. Uh, and, uh, only vote of reason. Yeah. So yeah. this is, this is going up, uh, curbed did an article about it. Uh, it was primarily, uh, supported by the only Republican now on the board of supervisors, Catherine Barger. What did she, what did she say about the project? This is not just another sprawl project, right? which is just saying a lot. Cause I think it, is the sprawl project of the century. Yeah, that's perhaps. what she's saying. It's yeah. the preeminent it's sprawl the- <laughs> project in history. It's <laughs> another sprawl this project. Isn't your, this, this isn't is your grandma's sprawl, sprawl project. The sprawl project for you <laughs> and your children. Uh, okay, I mean, so so basically she was saying, this is not a sprawl, this is not just a sprawl project because uh, it's part of our economic engine. Uh, which is, is familiar to anybody who's read about the growth machine or, or oh whatever. Right. Uh, we've prepared all of these new services and whatever. She's basically saying that because we're building essentially a new town um, and it's like master planned or whatever, that it's not the same as previous uh, L.A. sprawl, which is functionally ridiculous right. that yes. is, that's what we've been doing forever <laughs> right. the only difference <laughs> the only thing we do is that this is further and, and not connected to our rail system which all those were at it's, the beginning <laughs> it's, it's it's further away not con- connected to the rail system and extremely flammable so it's yeah as you we're guys were saying it is it is the the paragon of, of sprawl it is the exact kind of thing that the county supervisors uh, and every other local politician in la is always saying We've turned the page on that. This is not what we want to do anymore. And then now here they are greenlighting this. As, as you said, we only have one vote of reason on a five-person uh, supervisory board. That's that's really troubling. You know, you know, everything that we talk about with fire safety and climate change, um, this is a vote that gives me extremely little confidence in, in, in anything going forward. I mean, but the, uh, it actually getting built is kind of a long way off. Projects like this do get derailed for all kinds of reasons. Um or I guess there's no rail there, so they're like dehighwayed or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, like next year, everyone is saying that we're heading into a bad economic climate for next year. That's kind of all it takes for this to be uh, shelved indefinitely. Yeah, it's a ghost town. A um, couple of consequential votes in the city council this week. Uh, the criminalization of people sleeping in their cars in on most streets in LA came up for a vote again. Lots of people uh, went to the council meeting to protest that uh, practice. Uh, but they did maintain the policy on the city council. It passed unanimously. At the same time, they also voted in favor of a shelter uh, in in Venice. This is something that has been uh, a extremely controversial uh, structure in that neighborhood, bridge housing that uh, council member Mike Bonin has been pushing really diligently, uh, and it seems like they are going forward with it, which is great. Um, 
more interesting Koreatown news. Uh, Sky just told me about this story before the record. I had never really heard about it. Uh, Keep Koreatown after shutting down, uh, potentially splitting up their neighborhood council and uh, keeping a homeless shelter out of their neighborhood has moved on to a new uh, a, a new mission. What's what's Keep Koreatown's uh, new mission? So in specific, this is a, a, a group, an offshoot group called Wilshire Community Coalition, uh, which is... But it's some of the same people. Some from, of the yeah. same people uh, presided over by Jake Jong, who uh, was a lawyer that was... Uh, intimately involved in the effort to uh, s- to stop the siting of homeless housing in uh, in uh, Koreatown. This is, I, I think, I, I described it to you as like a coming of age moment for this uh, I- insurgent, uh, growing movement of of, of uh, Korean activism in the community. And uh, what they're doing now is they are, I, I think, actually the LAUSD board already agreed to take down a mural that is at uh, the RFK school that we mentioned earlier. We're about to talk to some uh, some folks who teach there. There's a mural. Uh, the RFK uh, school is on the site, former site of the Ambassador Hotel uh, and the Coconut Grove Nightclub, which is a storied part of L.A.'s entertainment history. Uh, it, it's a mural of Ava Gardner with uh, radiating light coming out of her head or whatever. Uh, and, um, the mural itself has been described by, uh, Jake Chong of the Wilshire Community Coalition as being, uh, as depicting the Japanese battle flag, which, uh, the WCC compared to a swastika and said, given the, uh, the history of Korea and, uh, Japan during the first part of the 20th century was an affront to the local neighborhood. So the LAUSD has now said that they are going to paint over this mural, uh, which is... And uh, I would say, like, it, it, there is a sunburst effect on right. the mural. Wait, I, they say it looks like both both the Japanese flag and a swastika? No, they're no, saying no, no. that that the Japanese oh, flag is the is equivalent. Like a swastika. Okay, of, of, okay, got it. I was like, wait. In, in terms okay. of offense to the uh, got neighboring it. Community. Okay, all right. So let's just look at this mural <laughs> real fast. Okay, so uh, okay. First of all, it's been up for a while. A couple of years. <laughs> it's been there for a couple of years, and, and so, which is why I think it's really intimately involved in yeah. this, like. Uh, um, I don't I don't know how long it has been uh, engendering this kind of feeling in the community, but it definitely seems like the community is feeling more empowered to take these kind of arguments to right. administrative right. bodies. And it was uh, shown before it was painted in community right. meetings. And uh, it's a common theme. This kind of uh, raise thing is a part of this um, artist murals. And also I would say like many murals are like this, sure. including like Shepard Ferry, who also has a mural on the building. I think it's but just for like, now because he has said yeah, he, that if they take down this mural, they're going to have to get rid of his too. Muralist solidarity. Murals are coming together. Yeah. There's like several very famous mural. I remember going to tour the school when they painted it, when they were doing this and it was they also have a lot of Japanese artists. Like they brought in a lot of people from, you know, the community and, you know, it's great, a mural pro- uh, program. Um, so why all of a sudden did they decide it upsets them if it's been up and they approved it as a community not that long ago? 
That said, uh, I think the LAUSD, the, the board has already unanimous, unanimously voted to get rid of the mural. And I totally get it. I totally understand just thinking this is absolutely not worth the fight that would come out of it. It's not LAUSD is not in the business of like defending standing up for anything really. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, and as we'll hear very shortly, they have uh bigger fish to so, uh, worry. That's about absolutely right true. I, th- I think that to me, uh, of course you want to be sensitive to community concerns anywhere that it, it's, a, it's a public building. There deserves to be some level of community input in what goes up there. Uh, to me, this, um, I, I actually found myself agreeing with Christopher Knight, the art critic in the LA Times, uh, who basically described this move by, uh, as executed by LAUSD as being just like arbitrary censorship. Mm-hmm. Um, to say that you don't like something or you find something offensive uh, in terms of, of the, the actual content of the mural uh, is a matter of opinion, but uh, the WCC and the letter that they put out were repeatedly saying as a matter of factual, uh, uh, as a statement of fact, that this was a depiction of the Japanese battle flag, which it is clearly not. Mm-hmm. Uh, Shepard Ferry noted in his, uh, in his statement that it doesn't have the same number of rays. The colors are very different. Um, and it's of... Ava Gardner. I mean, it's a mural of Ava Gardner. Shepard Ferry's mural on the building. Well, Shepard Ferry would know about, uh, you know, making sure that you are making artwork that is, you know, not going to offend anybody or (laughs) make people sue you. But his own artwork on the building has the same like rays, sunburst type effect. With, the, with an elephant. The RFK one? No, sorry. Uh, his, his like work on the West Hollywood li- library in that uh, in the yeah. Christopher Knight story. Cause I just started like looking and yeah, yeah. different ones, which is, it's a very similar thing. So are we going to take them off of this West Hollywood library? So what, what building? Jake Chong said uh, was that he wanted to see uh, in other locations because they, they want this one, this specific one taken down. He, he was saying that they should put up some sort of message on the other murals indicating why people might find it offensive, which obviously I, I doubt that the artist Bo Stanton would agree to. Uh, but yeah, no, it, it, this is, this is pretty bizarre case of it, it, it is censorship. It is, but I don't think it actually is arbitrary because there isn't an interest group coming out at the same time and saying like, keep the mural beyond. Right. Well, like, there are some groups c- like censorship some people. censorship and some, I mean, I mean, I think no, the like artists, groups. yeah, I think, I mean, it's like, uh, it's a free speech thing or whatever you want to say, but I would think most muralists that I've spoken to also uh, see their art as ephemeral. And that one thing that it's not like we're taking down a statue or something um, in that level of symbolism. A lot of people do understand that buildings get built and things change and murals get painted over and changed all the time in Mm -hmm. our city. And not that we shouldn't protect a lot of really important ones, uh, but I think maybe many artists and that's maybe why Shepard Perry's like, go ahead and paint over mine too on the same building because yeah. we're just used to this kind of, yeah. this, this is kind of the, the mode of artwork that it is. I think this is, I, I, I smell a council run from Jake Jong. Oh, uh, interesting. I saw a lot of people during the shelter protests at council meetings saying Her, uh, Herb Wesson, you are not the council member that we listen to. Jake Jong is our leader. Uh, and so if if you want momentum going, he's going to have to keep 
finding stuff like this going Keep finding into murals in Koreatown that are I have a few I have a few murals <laughs> I just personally like to have taken down so all right let's get into it with our teachers uh if you'll notice so far it's like the easiest way to do the dumbest transitions <laughs> is when you have teachers on a show is to say like Grab your, pick up your pencils, everybody. Like school's in session. We will not be doing that on this episode. But let's note that it is the first week of winter break for these students. So right. how wonderful are these teachers to take time off from their day? This is what I like to, oh yeah, absolutely. Very nice of them. And what I hope is happening is I hope LUSD students listen to this so they can know whether or not uh, they're potentially going to be dealing with a strike at yeah. the end of winter break. So they have like a long-term project or something. <laughs> <laughs> like how much they have to focus on, uh, on turning that in by uh, early January. Anyway, mm -hmm. um, yeah, we are going to talk to Janice Chow and Jasenia Chavez right now. I would like to welcome our guests. They're part of UTLA, United Teachers of Los Angeles. We have Janice Chow, uh, who teaches middle school science at the UCLA Community School on the RFK campus on, uh, on Wilshire. And we have Jasenia Chavez, uh, who teaches uh, K-1 at the same school. Hi, guys. Thank you so much for, for joining us. Hi. Thank you Thank for having you. us. Yes. <laughs> uh, if you could just kind of set the stage, I think a lot of people listening to this don't really know uh, sort of where the negotiation is at, uh, what some of the basic demands are of UTLA. Uh, if you just want to sort of run through the bullet points about what you guys are asking for, and then we can go into, into more detail on each of them. Yeah. So for the last two years, our union has been negotiating for our contract. So we've actually been working as teachers without a contract for the last two years. Um, we are now currently in the last legal stage of fact finding before we can legally declare a strike date. Um, and there are a bunch of things that we are asking for. Um, we want lower class sizes. We want real safety plans, which means uh, fully staffed schools, more counselors, psychologists, social workers, librarians, nurses. Um, we would like to see actual policies around becoming sanctuary schools less testing and more teaching. Our kids go through so much unnecessary standardized testing. Um, we're asking for a lot of things that will help our schools to be fully funded, um, community schools to help our students and families be supported. Fair wages also. We're looking at it in a holistic way. The child comes to school with their whole um, socioeconomic status also gets reflected in, the, in their performance. And so we are looking at how our students are coming to school and, and how many of them need lots more services than the ones that we can provide in the classroom. So that is a very long list of, of demands that the union has uh, from district administrators at this point. It seems like, although, um, when did uh, bargaining begin for, uh, but for the new contract or, or is this an ongoing process that you've been pushing for uh, up, updated um, benefits from the administrators? It's been an ongoing process for the last two years. And what happens right. is that they're always having these provisional um, contracts with us and then there's never any any concessions made. And I think that it spe really speaks to the leadership of the union that has been more assertive and more empowered and, and messaging to our members that it's time for them to li really listen to us and all the demands that we have. Our students are suffering. Our, we service brown and black students from low-income working class communities. And 
I think that we're at this point now because of all, I mean, this is my 13th year teaching and every time that there's a contract being opened up, we get offered crumbs and we accept it. And so now I think we're at that breaking point where we're not willing to back down anymore on, um, and I think that the community at large, the teachers at large are, are ready to stand up and fight for, for our students. Uh, let's talk about class sizes specifically. Are there any uh, limits right now on, on cla- class sizes in LAUSD? What kinds of class sizes are you guys dealing with and what do you think is like a healthy number? The district does, our contract does have um, a limit on class size and for secondary, which is 6th through 12th grade, um, our cap is somewhere around 37, something like that, which is still super high. Um, For my 7th grade science classes right now, I'm carrying rosters of 38 and 39 students. And not only is that too many preteens in anybody's care, um, (laughs) when you have students who are coming from backgrounds where they've experienced trauma or are coming from, you know, the traumas of poverty um, and other really intense things happening, it's way too many kids in one room to receive the individualized attention and feedback that you need to really do well. And so um, especially as a lot of our accountability measures are around testing, how am I going to give feedback in a timely um, and individualized way to all of my students? And then in the spring have test scores that reflect, you know, how awesome they are when we have like we're pushing 40. I don't have enough chairs. We just got a new student last week. Um, We had a new student two weeks before that. Um, And, you know, on one hand, in public ed, like the beauty of it is we do accept whoever comes to our doors. We're a neighborhood school. So people move in the middle of the year. They experience bullying and need to change. They're bouncing around the foster system, need somewhere to go. So we take everyone, which is beautiful. But also it can be hard when we don't have the resources to meet all of their needs. I think uh, something that might be a bit confusing or unfamiliar to some of our listeners is one of the things that we've talked about uh, in the past several months is that LAUSD is, has been for the past decade or so gradually losing funding as enrollment decreases um, in, in public schools throughout LA. Um, so can you sort of explain how class sizes are still so high, even though we are seeing overall enrollment numbers declining? Is it just that hiring has not kept pace or um, are, are there just not enough resources to handle the existing number of students that are enrolled? That's a really complicated question. A lot of factors play into that and starting with uh, housing costs in L.A., the charter school movement. I think it really like depends on like specific um, neighborhoods that you're in too, like how the specific trends that we see. So, for example, in our neighborhood in Koreatown, we have a huge population of older students. Um, and in our elementary, we are struggling with enrollment. So even at our own school, we see both of these phenomena happening at the same time. And like Jasenia said, I think part of it has to do with the privatization movement and how a lot of charter schools um are growing at an unregulated pace. Um, there aren't really any like restrictions on what, you know, uh, enrollment looks like for charter schools in certain neighborhoods. And so as more and more charters open up, we see a lot of public school students 
getting kind of drained from neighborhood schools into these charter systems. And so that's one explanation for why we see in some areas that we're losing students, but then in others, because we are a neighborhood school, um, we accept kids in the middle of the year and all that kind of stuff, whereas you know other schools may have different regulations or if their name is not quite as out there, you don't just get placed into a charter school, you know? Right. Yeah. So I think that's really important context. It sounds like even though uh, overall numbers are declining, the distribution is unequal in such a way that we still see crowding in some places, uh, insufficient resources. That, does that sound like it matches your experience? Yeah. And a lot of students end up coming back to mm-hmm. um, public schools. They, they go charters for a few years. It doesn't work for them or they get pushed out and then they end up coming back to their local public schools. I think that's also something that explains the higher class sizes in the middle and the high school levels, whereas we are struggling in in the elementary school to keep and retain students. You know, as they start getting older, they start having more issues. And and one of the things that happens at some charters, not all, but they end up pushing them out and because they're not regulated in the same way that that we are as public schools. I think that's one of the reasons why our demands for community schools is so important is this idea of school choice sounds, you know, really beautiful to be able to choose, but not everyone has the privilege to choose. And so if your neighborhood school is fully funded and fully resourced, everyone should have the privilege of being able to just go down the street or whatever to your neighborhood school and expect high quality education, um, prepare teachers and all that kind of stuff. But because we're not seeing fully funded schools, parents now are in this really tricky spot of having to do all this research to figure out the best place for their kid because they can't trust that their neighborhood public school is fully funded and resourced, which, you know, really sucks. Yeah. And then the parents that are higher functioning and that have that access to that information are the ones that end up applying to these other specialized programs or other things, creating, again, a two-tiered system where some kids are getting really great education and then the rest of them are not. So UTLA voted to, uh, the membership of the union voted to authorize a strike several months ago at this Mm -hmm. point, right? Um, Can you talk us through a bit about, I know you mentioned that you, the union leadership felt like this was a moment to take a stand, but given the standards that you've been putting up with for, uh, Jacini, in your case, you said 13 years at this point, uh, why does the union membership feel like this is the appropriate time to take this stand and say we're willing to go on strike for the first time in in decades? I think that we're just tired of the narrative that's being told about public schools. And we're also tired of our students having um, so many lack so many resources. And um, we also want to attract people to the profession. And so we want to make sure that we are creating uh, conditions, working conditions that are positive and that are going to work for teachers and for students. And I think that it takes a long time to get people to to be on board. You know, if they would have authorized a strike last year, the year prior, um, people are not ready. And a lot of us are working class background. I was a LA Unified student myself, K through 12. And so we're kind of have that immigrant and that working class mentality of, you know, you have a job and you just do the job and it's okay if they take things from you. But at this point, I think that the union and the leadership has really empowered our our members to say, no, it's time to take a stand. And we're just because the more that we give, we've been giving and giving and giving. And now we're at this at this point where we're we're just tired of it. I think that's my perspective. I think like the political climate has also raised the stakes a lot um, with this current administration. 
our communities are under attack from so many different angles. Which, one, which administration? It's the uh, Trump unfortunately, administration. okay, you could be talking about a few different <laughs> <Yes>. ones. <laughs> because talking UTLA, I know, has also been critical of the new uh, superintendent hire. Uh, mm-hmm. I saw a lot of signs at the rally had mm-hmm. Austin Butner's face on them. He is sort of seen as having been brought in to be a tough negotiator with uh, UTLA. I don't know how much that has affected your decision making. That, yes, also that. I was thinking more of the Trump administration, sure. but that is also a really good point. Buechner has not uh, been super helpful in terms of um, thinking about what our students really need and deserve. But um, what I was saying about Trump is more of like our students being from communities um, where, you know, socioeconomic status and um, immigration status and all this stuff has been like really difficult. And so um, things like new DACA applications no longer being accepted, all that kind of stuff, like sanctuary schools, increased presence of ICE in our community, especially in Koreatown, um, our immigrant communities have been targets of a lot of things because of the uh, federal administration. Um, and so I think strike has always kind of been like a whisper in the background of our union meetings. And I think now as like things have really ramped up, um, that has just kind of really come to the forefront. We've seen a lot of other states across the nation in this Red for Ed movement that has also empowered a lot of um, teacher strikes to take place and to really start fighting for this huge, huge issue that has been existent for such a long time. But um, yeah, I think all of the power kind of builds on each other in a really inspirational kind of way. And you, you, you're talking now about um, a strike that is supposed to happen next year, correct? Can you give us some details about what that would look like and you know what happens? What happens when teachers go on strike? So we are not sure about the date yet, but we will come back during the after the winter break, January 7th. And then we we were told that then we would get notice and maybe not come the next day or it depends. It depends. And but of course, we wouldn't just spring it on parents. Um, It would be we would be communicated to everyone so that parents have a plan. We've been working on this for months. We've been having parent meetings and messaging and flyering in the mornings. And we all wear our our buttons that say, ask me why I'm strike ready and our T-shirts. And we've been building sort of this this knowledge around in, in our communities so that our parents are also aware. And so we would be on the picket line uh, every day until the union is able to negotiate a fair contract with, with the district. Uh, what gets communicated to the students? Because a lot of these students are pretty old. It's just like in the lesson plan now, you know. <laughs> Great opportunity, right? For- <laughs> yeah. For me in the elementary school, it looks like reading books about union um, power, reading books about Cesar Chavez or the oh, janitor cool. strike or uh, this click clack moo book, where the <laughs> cows go on strike. Just to explain awesome. that. That is fantastic. <laughs> so we, we've been talking about it as a school community as well. Yeah. So in the upper grades, we uh, hold community circles um, to talk with students about what that might look like. What are the schools that they feel like they deserve? Um, what are some of the gaps that they see in their education? Education and their day-to-day life here at school. Um, and so I think talking with students around that has been really um, a good chance for them to ask questions, for them to share their insights. Um, our particular students, I feel like, have so much uh, exposure to social action um, with all the things happening around school shootings, um, the Trump administration being elected, um, all of that stuff. The students have done a number of walkouts that have been student-organized. Um, they've been very involved in the Black Lives Matter Students Deserve organization. Um, and I think a lot of that has really empowered our students to see that their voice does make a difference. So when we talk about the teachers, you know, fighting for better schools and fighting for them, they know what that means. And they have uh, some background in like learning about what collective uh, power can look like. 
Um, so I think our students are, you know, they're on board and they, they need to make a choice with their families of whether or not they're going to come to school. Um, if students don't come, then I guess that looks like schools get shut down. But if they do come, um, we have admin who are going to be there to supervise. Um, it's not yeah. really the teacher's problem and <laughs> the district will figure out what's going to go on there. Yeah. In 89, I was in elementary school when there was a, the last strike. And I remember I was a fourth grader. We were in the, uh, in the auditorium watching movies for wow. a few days. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I want to hear about uh, the sanctuary schools issue a little bit more. Uh, there Obviously, there are a lot of students in LAUSD who are undocumented, uh, probably a lot of your school, certainly their families are. Uh, what does that look like on the ground? Have you guys dealt with the, the school in LAUSD cooperating with ICE, or has there been any kind of presence like that in, in, in your school? At our particular school, um, we did have kind of a scary incident that happened last year. Um, we It was just after school let out and one of our teachers was walking home and she saw two uh, adults um, walk onto campus and they were wearing, you know, like the black vests. Um, and because we have been trained by our students um, about what ICE presence looks like, uh-huh. wow. um, she saw that and was like, that looks weird. So she... Um, went up to them and, you know, they like were not wanting to say who they were and Mm -hmm. things. So she like called admin and then eventually some admin came out and later on it was reported that they were LAPD like gang unit members, but they weren't like wearing LAPD stuff. Identifying, yeah. Yeah. So, um, it was like this very scary incident where like all the kids just got out of school and here are two possible ice looking agents walking onto campus and they just walked right on by, um, our gatekeepers and things. And so... Um, at our particular school, I think that is maybe like the closest that we've gotten to ICE presence on campus. But um, at other LA Unified schools, we've had people, um, a father who was taken by ICE after dropping off his daughter right so outside of school. There was a lot of activism to get him freed from the mm-hmm. detention center. And so, um, yeah, the official line of the district is that they will not release student names, but... There's no Which like other districts in like Boston, for example, they did that exact. Mm-hmm. Thing. Yes, they did. Uh, but 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 the, the, here they have said that they are not doing that. Correct. Okay. But there are no actual um, trainings or protocols or policies or written out things to explain like what does that mean. So if someone comes onto campus, like do you let them in? Who do you call? Like if someone is demanding that you release somebody's name, you know, like people are not really trained to deal with that, and so. Our students um, actually came up with the beginnings of sanctuary school policies that they're trying to train everyone at the RFK campus to learn, um, everyone at the UCLA Community School as staff got trained. Um, But it is like a bigger thing that the students are kind of taking charge on because the district hasn't made any movement around it. And you guys have also had to deal with uh, random searches uh, at school as well. I think administration or I don't know exactly who is who is responsible for instituting those. But I know that was something that you were you guys were trying to negotiate, not not having those anymore. Is that something that's also kind of disruptive to you, you, you guys uh, trying to teach? Absolutely. When students... Um experience armed police presence on campus and are randomly, and I'm putting that in quotes, randomly searched, it actually is like a very distinct racial profiling thing that's happening. Um, Not only does it take students out of class time and like slows down them being able to get back to class after lunch and things like that, it also severely affects the identity of a student of like, you're coming to school to be a scholar and here you are being treated as a criminal 
based off of no evidence. You know, these random searches actually haven't turned out any finds of weapons. Um, and every time a weapon has been reported on campus, it has been through, you know, other student peer relationships or teachers knowing kids and then being like, something is off here. Um, and so having a lot of those like adult counselor relationships is actually more of a school safety plan than having police randomly search um, students on campus. And so that has been also a really big student-led uh, movement that's been happening to end random searches in the district. But again, no promises have been made, no movement forward around and that. And also the cost, you know, the cost mm-hmm. of having all these random searches, that money could be used to hire more counselors. It could be used to have less students in each classroom. I mean, it, it, that money that they spend on these random searches could be much better spent building relationships with students because that that's what's been what has prevented uh, students from having um, weapons or having an, an incident has that trust that we have in that community uh, that we have in our schools. So uh, from your perspective in the conversations that you've been having with uh, students, it sounds like the students are uh, very, at least in large part, very politically active and aware already more so than I probably was when I was um, a middle schooler or high schooler, um, which makes sense given our climate. But um in the conversations that you've had with students and the broader community, does it seem like parents and kids are on board with the the idea of this strike? Are they bought into the, the goals that you're trying to achieve? Or obviously this is something that is a major decision for all parties, but do you feel like the support is there? Yeah, I think our parents um, care so much about their children's education and they are understanding that the situation that we're in, the resources that are available are not adequate to what their students deserve. And so we do have a lot of parents who have been, you know, very supportive and saying, just tell me what I need to do to support. Um, And I think that has been something that has been really helpful. Um, I don't want to make it seem like our kids are, you know, special because they're politically active. I think we still have a lot of students who are asking very real questions of, are we going to get marked absent if we don't come? And still kind of wrestling with that fact of like, yes, that's part of disruption is you have some kind of personal cost that's going to come with that. um, And you need to decide, you know, what does that mean for you? And, um, you know, I think our kids are still learning a lot of things as well. Um, And I think, Yeah, you don't have to be super politically active to see that your class sizes are giant or Mm -hmm. that you don't have the things that you need or you go to the nurse and they're not there because they actually only work one day a week. (laughs) And, you know. Yeah. And I think also the students just they just know you walk in Koreatown, especially you walk into campus and you pass tons of homeless people. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a lot of drug addiction and there's they just they see it and even the even the little ones can sense and see that something's wrong and something's not working and definitely our parents are are supportive and yesterday at the march we had tons of students and parents I also think that that the leadership has really pushed for more of these types of conversations to happen among students parents and families because it's it's for everyone it's for the benefit of everyone it's not just the greedy teachers that want to an increase, mm-hmm. which is how the narrative gets told over and over again. But it really is about community and building better schools for our students. And a lot of our parents, you know, are immigrant parents, and they want to follow the rules and they, they don't want their kids to miss school. And they're worried about all of those re- repercussions. Um, but at the end of the day, we, it's constantly having those conversations because there's still a lot of confusion. I think what's happening? Why is this happening? Especially when you contextualize our, our job compared to, say, their job working as a um, housekeeper for, you know, 
five dollars an hour or whatever the cost and and then we're in this professional role and so it's, for them it's a little bit different to understand some why would we strike when we have a lot of privilege um compared compared to the the families but i think they understand the big picture and, and there's a big a big movement in, in mexico and in latin america people are constantly on strike and yeah. shutting down streets and right. And so then some of the parents told me, well, it's about time, you know, yeah. why don't you guys shut down the street, you know, um, but we're so diplomatic and we go through all these stages. And, you know, so I think that that all of those conversations are taking place and, and we're building more um, stronger relationships with our students. I think something for, for a lot of people that was a real wake up call was Steve Lopez's series recently about student homelessness. Um, and he went and profiled a school in the Valley, which had the highest rate, I think, of homeless um, students. But it's a it's a district wide problem. I mean, I don't know if you guys have numbers for your school, but I would assume, you know, you have many students that are homeless and you know those situations. And I did think there was a good there was some good conversation about it from the leadership level at LAUSD about, you know, can we offer safe parking? Can we supply meals when we're not in school? I mean, this just points to your point even more like you are doing much more than being teachers. You are providing shelter and meals and making sure people are taking taken care of the whole family. How can we make sure that these students are are going to be taken care of going forward? And, you know, what would that look like from LAUSD's you know, policy changes that you're looking at? I think that's part of what uh, our demands are around, you know, community schools and wraparound services to really make sure that our students have what they need when they're at school. So, you know, learning is one thing, but if you're hungry, it's very hard to learn. Um, and so making sure that we have, you know, those things in place and that when you have trauma or you're going through something at home or, you know, you've experienced loss in different kinds of ways to have adequate social workers and counselors and psychologists who can help with that. Um, because again, learning is very hard when you have these other things going on. And so right now we have, you know, counselors at our school, but their caseloads are astronomically high. And so not everyone is getting the services that they need. Um, and so I think that's one of the big pushes for community support and um, having community schools um, is making sure that our kids have these uh, fully staffed schools where they can go to the nurse or they can go to the library and have an adult there um, who can help them get the things that they need. Yeah, it's beyond being teachers. I mean, you are support for working families and mm -hmm. you, are, you are really the glue that holds together society. I mean, for people not to understand this or to think that we can ignore this, it's just very troubling for me as, as a mom, and, mm -hmm. you know, as a parent who that will do anything to support these schools. Thank you. Yeah. And I think that that's part of the even our youngest children are coming to school with all of these mm -hmm. these things. And schools are a gateway to services. You know, mm -hmm. a lot of Absolutely. parents will ask me are they because you have this trust. They, they're sending their five year old or six year old to you to your care every day. I start hearing all and my parent conferences turn into therapy sessions <laughs> with parents or figuring finding legal services or or food from food banks or, you know, getting on waiting lists. And so it turns into being a lot of this, this managed crisis management for us and beyond like your kid can read or not read. You know what I mean? So dealing with the, with the district is one thing, but it seems like in order to get the funding uh, that you guys need for LAUSD, at some point, this is going to have to become an issue with the state. Uh, that like some kind of fundamental policy is going to have to be changed uh, to get more money put into the schools. Is there any thought 
within the the teachers union. I mean, you, you talk about the red for ed protests in other places. Those were, I think, in a lot of cases, teachers going to the state house and saying our schools are underfunded. California's uh, educate, spending per student, I think, is in the, the 40s of all the states. It's really low. Uh, at, at at what point do we uh, just all pile on a van and go up to Sacramento <laughs> and uh, and stick them up for more cash? I think that's definitely something that you know is part of this holistic fight. Is California is the fifth largest economy in the world? Not not even you know we're the richest state in the whole nation, um, and yet we're forty third. Um, in terms of per pupil spending. And so part of it, yes, is like our district budget and the way that they are, you know, managing money or choosing to not spend our over billion dollar reserves. Um, but part of it is also a huge statewide issue as well, that we are not unique in our district in our struggles, that across the state, our education is just not prioritized in the budget. And that is for sure something that is going to need to change um, as part of, you know, a systemic difference that we're going to have to see. And there is a campaign, it's called 20 by 20. So we want to have the the union has pushed that also that we understand that it's a, a, also a state level issue. And so there is this campaign called 20 by 20. And there is um, leadership and, and teachers that and parents that will take trips to Sacramento to talk to our, our representatives and, and talk about introducing a bill or doing something mm-hmm. to have our schools be fully funded statewide. That's what we try to focus on. I think on the show, a lot of people talk about how LAUSD is failing kids. Kids are not graduating at the levels that they need to be to be prepared for college. But compared to basically every other state, uh, we are we're just not giving them the tools that they need to succeed. Like Florida has a, a, a 25 student cap per per class for us to be behind <laughs> Florida in that respect for, you know, yeah. such a progressive state. Yeah. Um, you know, like before we start talking about LAUSD is is failing kids, I, we feel like we just have to give the the, the district uh, and you guys the tools that you need to, to succeed in the first place. And that's interesting, too, because uh, I, I feel like the, the state level conversation, uh, L.A. might be an outlier because of our size, because of the number of kids that we actually have in our, our, our district. The magnitude is, is is kind of overwhelming. But I feel like the, the discussions in the state house don't necessarily reflect the very important uh, topics that you have brought up here today. Um, I know and I don't know if you um, if you have seen or heard about the proposals for universal pre-K. That's a major uh, push by the incoming governor. Uh, do you feel like that's roughly aligned with what you would like to see in LAUSD? Is this is this part of a package that you want to see for, for our kids? Yeah, that's one of the demands that uh, I left off of the list, but is on um, the things that we're demanding is uh, more investment in early education, Mm -hmm. adult education and bilingual education. That's definitely one of the big things that the union is also really pushing for um, as part of the holistic change. You, Jesenia, probably uh, are are taking in kids that are entering school for the first time. Is that right? Is that sort yeah, of your experience yes. with, with, with kindergartners? Okay. Yes. Yeah. Um, um, a lot of them do go to local preschool programs and there, but there's a few, we get a lot of newcomers too. And, uh, the beauty in our program though, is that I get to speak Spanish. I teach 90% of my days in Spanish. And so it's a more natural transition from the home to the school environment. And that's one of the things the, the district just passed. I mean, the, 
the proposition that passed to support, you know, dual language education or bilingual education, but they haven't put any resources into it. Mm-hmm. Um, it was banned for a long time. Has that changed just in the last couple of years? You weren't allowed to do that until... Because we had that Prop 229, was it, yeah, that got rid like of that. Pete Wil- Governor Pete Wilson, mm-hmm. um, got rid of um, bilingual education, and it's made a big comeback. I think uh, a lot of parents see the benefits in learning in more than one language be- because why are you going to tie one kid's arm behind his back when he has that language to use? And so now we have that option, and it's... I'm sorry, I'm, I'm now I'm rambling, but... But I'm curious, as, as far as the the negotiations with district administrators go, uh, obviously there's a lot of that that's happening behind closed doors, but there, there has been something that came out in recent weeks, uh, the proposal by uh, Austin Butner, superintendent, to um, make the district sm- uh, smaller or break it up into a network of decentralized nodes. Can you talk about what, if any, impact do you think that that would have on on the day-to-day life of students and teachers? This is one of those huge things that I feel like is they're trying to be super sneaky about, but actually will devastate public education. So this is their plan to privatize um, public ed and to split the district into 32, uh, what's the term? Um, I don't know, pockets or whatever. Um, And basically to give each school a number based off of your test scores and to use test scores as a way to um, incentivize performance and have schools kind of compete with each other over resources. And so given all of these uh, contextual things that we've been talking about of how hard it is for students from low socioeconomic status background to... um, succeed in school when they're not given the resources that they need. This means that there are many of, you know, many of our schools that will continue to lose funding, um, if not get shut down or be threatened to shut down. Um, And it's their attempt to treat schools as businesses and to think that, you know, we can somehow use a business model to run something that is fundamentally relational. Um, And so, that is a huge thing that's going to that's part of this fight as well is fighting against the privatization of Los Angeles schools. They've turned all of the schools in what is it, New Orleans and Detroit. Um, no more public schools there. And so I think there are definite you know plans that people want to do that in L.A. as well. Um, and we need to fight to not let that happen. So it sounds like based on the way that you're describing it, uh, this this node network, uh, the network plan that Butner put forth, uh, could actually end up putting in place a system where the schools that already are the best resourced in terms of having, uh, parents that are actively involved in their, uh, students' lives and have probably better financial resources then accumulate more of the district's resources as well. So it sounds like a, a vicious cycle for mm-hmm. every everyone else, basically. So in terms of the new business-friendly uh, LAUSD administration, how, mm-hmm. how do you how do you actually go about um, how do you actually go about fighting that? How do you win the perception war when, as uh, as you said, Jacinia, a lot of the times there's this perception that uh, I think to me clearly doesn't match up with reality of what you what you're actually fighting for as teachers that the teachers union is just out to protect uh, bad actors uh, within 
schools and and get a bunch of money for teachers as some sort of windfall. How do you uh, win the perception battle and and get people to realize that something like this plan could be uh, incredibly disastrous for low income students? You do this small and big. So small means you have to talk to people. Um, you know, everyone who knows a teacher should be talking to people over the holidays, you know, sending out texts or whatever, engaging people in conversation around the real stories that you hear, the real people that you hear. Um, and then the big part of that is really believing in the power of collective action. And so part of why the strike is such a powerful tool is because we, you know, fight giants. And how you do that is you get hundreds of thousands of people on board um, to authorize strike, to go out for a march and then to join the picket line and to empty the schools for, you know, however many days it takes for the district to give in. Um, and I think a lot of that mobilization starts small with talking with folks and talking with parents, um, talking to neighbors, doing things like this and getting the word out there from real narratives of people who are on the ground and experiencing this every day. Yeah, definitely having those conversations. And I, we're also dealing with anti-union sentiment. Mm -hmm. With we, We're dealing with the, there's the attack against unions and collective bargaining, and, and that's attached to wages. And so I think our, our fight is really, it's really difficult because everyone kind of vilifies unions. And so having these conversations and talking to our families and, and talking to our friends like Janice shared is, is it's, it's going to be, it's a huge fight, but I feel a lot of uh, very hopeful because of all the, all the strikes that have happened across the nation. Mm -hmm. I think that, and the, the time articles, I don't know if you had a chance to see those. I'm a mm -hmm. teacher in America, just kind of getting the story out there because we are human beings too. And mm -hmm. We are, we're, we're, we work our butts off every day and we all marched yesterday, all 50,000 plus teachers after being exhausted <laughs> usually that, right. that our first Friday, day of like, winter break <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> so i think getting the word out yeah hollywood i think has been partially responsible for this in ways that are especially like seven or eight years ago it feels like there were a few things coming out at the same time waiting for superman that documentary i feel like people still talk about um there was a this american life episode about the rubber rooms and like how hard mm -hmm. it is to fire teachers people still remember those things and it it got a lot of anti-teachers union sentiment out there yeah. uh, i was uh, watching an hbo show a couple years ago about uh, uh like a, one of the main characters was trying to like start a charter school in her neighborhood stuff like that um so for or like celebrity charter schools too you know totally yeah yes <laughs> You guys need your own. Uh, that movie that um, <laughs> Maggie Gyllenhaal and Viola Davis did a few years ago. It was like, a, that was, it was a school choice movie. I think it made like $20. But <laughs> I'm amazed uh, at, at how much uh, like the anti-teachers union sentiment there is in, in, in Hollywood. And I, it's tough for you guys to, to fight back against that. With but. our limited budget and resources. <laughs> yeah. right. But I think there's also hope there of like, as all of this crazy sociopolitical stuff is happening, you know, you have more and more, um, what is the word, like sympathy with things like immigrant rights and, you know, migrants who are coming to the border and like all these kinds of things where people are kind of opening their hearts and being like, oh, wait, this is really wrong. You know, like police brutality, what is happening with that? Like that is really wrong. And so I think there are people who are starting to open their minds and seeing like, wait, like this is not right. And so as we frame our narratives around, you know, instead of saying that the strike is about the union, if we say that it is about the kids, because really that is what it is, what it's about. And especially our most vulnerable 
multiple populations of kids, I think that's where a lot of people can then, you know, access the same thing of like, wait, I do believe in that. And so I think there are a lot more people who are open and like the media is kind of, I don't know about the media, but you know, um, <laughs> that there's kind of a crack there that there's hope, um, that people will come around and I think really sympathize with the plight of uh, public education right now. Janice, Jasenia, thank you guys so much for joining us. Good luck. Uh, enjoy uh, your winter break and potentially uh, longer than that <laughs> <laughs> if it comes down to it. And uh, and keep us keep us posted for sure. Thank, thank you. you so much. Yeah, thank H- you. Hunk at us when you pass the picket line. We'll yeah. wait. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what? Uh, Cool teachers to have. Amazing, amazing. Uh, here's where I say like pencils down or something. <laughs> like that. Uh, I love the. I, I I didn't expect at all how much they talked about um, teaching the strike as part of the the curriculum. That was I, I so was so thrilled to learn that. So cool. Uh, thank you guys for listening. We will be back next week. Uh, we're not taking. Are we taking a Christmas break? No, no. Uh, we'll be back next week. Uh, Not where this is a secular podcast. <laughs> <laughs> On LA Podcast. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>